Revelation chapter 11 tonight. Good to see everybody. Welcome to Thursday night. <laughs> All right. Let me pray for us and we'll jump into this chapter. Father, thank you so much. God, thank you. We, we praise you. God, we praise your son. We praise your Holy Spirit. We hail the king tonight, the king of heaven and earth, the king of the universe, the king of the church, God, the king of our families, the king of our life. We surrender and submit our lives to him, God, and we live to give you praise. Tonight, thank you, God, that you are present with us and we have so deeply felt your presence. We pray, God, that you would wash us and cleanse us and prepare us for your word. God, we pray that you would apply the blood of your son to our hearts. God, that you would unstop our ears that we might hear what your spirit has to say to us. God, we pray that your word tonight would fly like an arrow to our heart and that you would God, as you always do, that you would just perfectly hit the mark, God, that we would leave tonight really having been spoken to by you, God, knowing that you have given to us personally a word that we would be able to leave this place and say that we've met with God. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, listen, honestly, tonight, there is so much, there is so much to talk about, and it will be a miracle if um, we get through this, but, but we're going to do it, even if we stay here till 11 o'clock, and uh, you just, you just <laughs> some of you are happy about that, some of you are like, hot, figuring out your strategy on how you're going to slip out. Um, I want to just um, remind you, last week we were talking about the parenthetical chapter, right, it kind of felt like a, a little bit of a pause, or I said if, it, if the chapter really was a, um, a punctuation mark, it would have been kind of like a, a comma, because it seemed almost as if, you know, all of the issues prophetically that John had been writing about, in some sense, came to a halt, uh, and then there was this personal ministry that the angel gave to John, and that angel, either being an angel or, or being Jesus, you know, I mean, there are a lot of different opinions on that, um, but there's no doubt that that parenthetical moment was for the strengthening of the prophet, because while he had prophesied faithfully, uh, the prophecy was not complete, and uh, we talked about how challenging it is to carry the word of God sometimes, and we need those times of refreshing and and oftentimes we need that moment of silence and solitude so we can be refreshed by the Lord. Um, but all of that looking forward to the rest of the prophecy, which really is uh, obviously in chapter 11, a continuation of chapter 10. Not just because chapter 11 comes after chapter 10, but the content, you're like, yeah, of course it's a continuation. But the content really is um, almost anticipatory in nature. Uh, and let me just say this before I say anything else. Remember, the epicenter of, of prophecy, biblical prophecy, is Jerusalem. It is absolutely Israel. Never forget that everything 
um, prophetic in Scripture is oriented around the nation of Israel. And yet even more specifically than that, its epicenter, right, Israel is the center, but the epicenter of the center is Jerusalem itself. And so today what we're going to see is we're going to see that the prophet dials in some details on what's happening in Jerusalem um, but all of this is anticipatory. It's almost like a, a prelude to the final three and a half years. So my view on chapter 11 is that, like in a chronological sense, we're, we're right in the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. And, um, of course, you know, we've discussed how the judgments of God probably are not all happening simultaneously, um, while there are different views on, you know, the length of time that the judgments of God um, extend, you, my perspective is that they extend for a seven-year period of time, and so there already have been a series of judgments, and we know that, right? Seal judgments, trumpet judgments that have happened, but the final three and a half years is the most significant time of God's judgment. It's God's wrath. It's his unmitigated wrath to the extent that it's wrath like the world has never experienced before. It's unique in that regard. Uh, and in addition to that, if you're familiar with the prophets and the minor prophets of the Old Testament, you know that this is a topic that is spoken of over and over and over again. In fact, there are a lot of different names um, or phrases that um, deal specifically with this final three and a half year period. Some of you know, uh, for instance, the time of Jacob's trouble or the great day of judgment. These are terms that you will discover in the books of prophecy in the Old Testament that deal specifically with this moment of time. And so, so in a way, what we're seeing in this chapter is an anticipatory look into the three and a half year period of time. Uh, that is going to begin right here in chapter 11 and is going to extend all the way to chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. And so check out with me what the scripture says. John says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. That for sure should catch your attention. Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple... And do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So John is back into the prophetic swing of things, and he's give, given instruction by the angel. And the instruction is really interesting. Take a reed uh, like a measuring rod. And this, of course, was how they measured things. When they were doing building projects, they didn't have lasers and tape measures and things like that. They would have a reed that they would use. Uh, and they would mark out distances using this reed, typically cut uh, according to a cubit, which was the average distance from the tip of the finger to the elbow of the average person. But the instruction is very interesting because the angel says, rise and measure the temple of God. Now, um, those of you who are familiar with history know that at the writing of the book of Revelation, and, you know, the vast majority of commentators and historians agree with this, at the writing of the book of Revelation, the temple in Jerusalem had already been destroyed. Remember, in 70 AD, Titus and three legions came down from the north. They, they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. 
they ended up on the Temple Mount, and the temple was completely destroyed. And in fact, it was the fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, that not one stone of the temple would be left on top of another. And, you know, there is this idea, um, many historians believe this was the case, that when they were laying siege to the city of Jerusalem, an errant arrow, because typically what the Romans would do is, you know, they would preserve um, the religious places of worship in the different cities that they would besiege because they would then take those religions and they would incorporate them into the pantheon of religions that were worshipped in Rome. And this was a way that they curried favor with the people that they were, you know, that they were um, conquering. Unless those people were like really difficult, then they would literally wipe them out completely but the idea was that this errant arrow, a flaming arrow, was shot into the temple. And of course, the temple, this is Herod's temple. This is the modified temple um, of the temple that was built by Zerubbabel some 500 years earlier. This errant arrow went into the temple and lit fabric on fire. And the modified temple had been plated with gold. It was an amazing thing to behold. And as the fire began to rage, the gold began to melt, and it seeped in between the stones that the temple was made of. And so as the city was besieged, the soldiers wanting to get to the gold literally pushed every stone off of every stone so they could scrape the gold off of those stones, and then they would have that booty for themselves. And so, you know, when John wrote this prophetic book, this apocalyptic book, we're talking about 20 years after the destruction of Israel. And so evidently what John is talking about, as the angel is, is instructing him here, is a third temple, a, a third temple that is going to be rebuilt in a certain period of time. Now, there are those who believe in replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel, and they would say, well, this is metaphorical, you know, because we see that in the New Testament, the temple is referred to or it's used illustratively um, of the people of God. So really, we're not talking about a physical temple. We're talking about the church. But that just does not fit within the context of what John is writing here. We're, we know we're talking about a, a physical building. Uh, and there's just so many amazing things to consider, right? Because you know that the children of Israel had been dispersed in the diaspora for some 2,000 years almost. And it's only until recently that they've repopulated. The Jews have had uh, a physical location for them to have as a homeland again, and they've come back from all of the four corners of the world, as prophesied by Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and they have repopulated what we know to be Israel. And so, I mean, you guys are living in privileged times. And, you know, for the first time in 1900 years, the concept of a third temple being rebuilt is absolutely a possibility. Now, in the 67 war, this was interesting because when the Jews came back in 1948, the Temple Mount was under the control of uh, the Jordanians. But in the 67 war, God granted the Israels just a, an amazing victory. Five countries had allied themselves against the Jewish people, and their intent was to push the Jews out of Israel and into the Mediterranean. They just, they wanted to cleanse the land of the Jewish people. Well, the exact opposite 
because you know God's amazing. The exact opposite happened, and uh, Israel not only was able to successfully defend themselves, they took territory that had previously not been their own. And the Temple Mount was part of the territory that they conquered. Like they moved into eastern Jerusalem that had been held by the Jordanians. Uh, in fact, paratroopers landed on top of the Temple Mount. And you can, you, you can download this. There's, there's an audio recording of uh, Israelis saying the Temple Mount is in our hands. Yeah, I mean, an amazing thing, right? And, and like if you're living in 1967 and you're thinking, man, the Temple Mount, they've, 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 they've got their hands on the Temple Mount, of course they're going to secure that for themselves. But Moishe Dayan, the general, did something that was so interesting. He ceded religious control to the Jordanian religious police. And, you know, it, it's, it's one of those decisions that just doesn't seem to make sense because you would think, that the Jewish people would be, would be thinking, man, finally, we got, we, we've got the Temple Mount back. We've got the place of worship back. And now, and now we can reinstitute the worship of our God in the most significant place, right? The place where Abraham bound Isaac and offered him as a sacrifice to the Lord. The place where David brought the Ark of the Covenant and sanctified the location for God to be worshipped. The, the, the place where the tabernacle moved from Shiloh into the city of Jerusalem. The place, the exact place where Solomon built the first temple. The exact place where Zerubbabel built the second temple. I mean, this is the single most significant location in Judaism. And yet something happens that is so hard to understand... The general cedes control to the Jordanian religious police so that today, if you go with me to the Temple Mount, uh, you, 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 we don't have the freedom to do a Bible study there. We don't have the freedom to pray. We do it anyway. And we've almost been kicked off the Temple Mount a couple of times. But uh, Jews, you know, Orthodox Jews will go up there, but they're not allowed to pray either. It's just one of those things that makes you ask the question, Why? Um, and, and I believe that the answer is God has a very specific time that the third temple is going to be rebuilt. You know, and we know that there's a, there's a timeline that God has established as it's contained right here in the pages of the book of Revelation. Uh, and in, in fact, what we know is that in the middle of the tribulation, the temple will be present, and in addition to that, there will be an altar where sacrifices will be made, and then in addition to that, there will be those who are worshiping there. Um, so, this is interesting. You can hit the next slide. Um, we do know that everything is ready for the temple to be rebuilt and for worship to be reinstituted. So all of the clothing for the priests, all of the implements that are used in worship, uh, the red heifer has been secured uh, so that the water for purification can actually make, you know, in a religious sense, those who are offering, offering sacrifices pure to do so. Um, people have already developed, they've already developed uh, architectural designs for the third temple, and they say that within two months from the initial beginning of the project, uh, the actual temple could be built. The problem is, 
How is that going to happen considering that there's a mosque on top of the Temple Mount? Al-Aqsa Mosque is one of the holiest sites in Islam. And then not only that, but you have the Dome of the Rock, um, a dome, a golden dome that sits over exposed bedrock where they believe that uh, Muhammad ascended. So how in the world is it possible that a temple is going to be built given, you know, those details. Um, I wanted to show you this because there's three different options, right? This is the Temple Mount. What you see is uh, the wall surrounding the Temple Mount. Some of that has been modified in the 14th century. For the most part, the bedrock on that walled structure is from the time of Herod uh, because Herod, he leveled this whole area out as a significant um, area. It's huge. And uh, he created this uh, area by leveling the top and building up the walls. So some people believe that the, the, the third temple is going to be built to the south, which is where that rectangle is that has the number one on it. The difficulty with that is that is precisely where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is currently. There are some people who say, well, no, it's, it's going to be right in the center of the Temple Mount because probably that is where it was originally. So the Jews are going to want to rebuild the third temple where the temple originally stood. And some people believe that that is where the current Dome of the Rock is at. And so people have come up with all sorts of crazy ideas like, well, you know, probably what's going to happen is an errant Scud missile is going to hit the Dome uh, of the Rock and blow it up. And uh, then they can scrape that off and they can build, you know, uh, a temple there. I mean, a lot of the ideas are way more scholastic than that. But that, that's the one I just wanted to share with you. And then there are those who think, well, no, most likely the, the original temple probably was placed at the north of the Temple Mount. And, and people believe that because if you look down, there's, this, there's that little uh, red outline that I, you know hastily drew for you that really looks stupid but, but right there that's where the the eastern gate or the lion's gate is um, and that lion's gate is a direct shot uh, to where that third rectangle is and then up to the right of that third rectangle there is exposed bedrock where some people believe the ark of the covenant actually sat in the most holy place and historians do believe that the Eastern Gate would have been a straight shot right into uh, the temple. And this would make sense because if the temple was there to the north part of the Temple Mount, um, it would allow for the Jews to worship to the north, for there to be a partition right where the Dome of the Rock is at, and for the Muslims to continue to worship um, in their mosque and to maintain the Dome of the Rock. And I think that that's interesting because the Bible says in verse 2, leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for two, 42 months. So, I mean, it would seem, by the way, um, the instruction is given to John that in fact this concept of partitioning the Temple Mount like it is, would actually satisfy the layout that the angel is talking about here. What we do know is somebody's going to have to come along. Someone's going to have to, 
some amazing person who has the capacity to bring peace between Muslims and Jews, right? Somebody who's got an ability to broker very different, very difficult covenants is going to have to show up on the scene and is going to have to be able to work the deal so that, so that uh, Muslims and Jews are worshiping in the same area. And of course, we know that person to be the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to be the one, he's, he's going to be sinister, but he's going to be suave. He's going to have the ability, you know, like a, it, it is a, a supernatural ability to come on the scene and to deal with very difficult problems and to sort them out in a way where people will concede ultimately global authority to him. And one of the issues that he is going to solve is the issue of Jews and Muslims worshiping on the Temple Mount. Um, of course, we know based on the book of Daniel chapter 9, that the Jewish people will make a covenant with the Antichrist at the beginning of the seven-year period of tribulation. And so for three and a half years, there will be this covenant with this individual that they think is beneficial for them, it's helpful for them, he's shown up on the scene, he's solved a lot of problems, but three and a half years into that covenant relationship, he is going to go into the rebuilt temple, the third temple, and he's going to demand that sacrifices be made to him. He's going to proclaim himself to be God, and he is going to initiate a holocaust like the world has never seen before. And the city of Jerusalem, like the Bible says here, will be tread underfoot for 42 months or three and a half years. So this is the final three and a half year period, a time of Jacob's trouble, this was what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 24 when he was saying to those Jewish disciples during that time in Jerusalem, hey, it's, it's, better, it's, it's better for you uh, if really you weren't even present during this time. You know, make haste on the Sabbath. Hopefully you're not pregnant with children. You'll have to flee the city of Jerusalem. And many people believe that the Jews will flee to the rock city Petra where the Bible says they will be secured for three and a half years until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so check this out. There's, there's more detail. Verse three, and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So you guys hear the two witnesses before? Raise your hand if, if you have. All right. So, I mean, this is a really interesting portion of Scripture. All of a sudden, you have these two witnesses kind of coming out of nowhere. It seems like they're coming out of nowhere. Um, and they will have been prophesying for 1,260 days. Do you guys know how long that is? That's three and a half years. So, um, different views on this. But my personal view is that these two witnesses, we'll talk about who they are in just a minute, uh, but they will have been ministering in the city of Jerusalem, um, absolutely empowered by God, right? Supernaturally powered. Um, they are performing miracles that are similar to prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, and they'll have been faithfully being witnesses for the first three and a half years of the seven-year Tribulation. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, three and a half years, 1260 days, 365 uh, in a third day in a year, like that, the math doesn't work. But remember, when we're talking about the prophetic calendar, we're talking about the Jewish calendar, which is a 360 day calendar. So 
They've been ministering for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Uh, and ultimately, they're going to be removed by the Antichrist. Check this out. The Bible says in verse 4, okay, they're clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is an expression of repentance and sorrow. You know, the prophets of the Old Testament, man, they oftentimes came with such strong prophecy, right? Convicting prophecy, correcting the people when they were wayward, expressing the displeasure of God, and even themselves bearing a burden over the condition of God's people. And that's no different here. You know, these prophets, they're wearing this sackcloth as an expression of not only the, the displeasure of the spiritual condition of God's people. We're going to see this in a minute because Jerusalem did not have a good reputation in a heavenly sense, but they themselves, not just acknowledging the burden that God had, they themselves were burdened as well. He says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So the length of their ministry is three and a half years long. Their identity here, it's interesting, that the reference that's given uh, in Revelation chapter 11 verse 4 takes us back to Zechariah chapter 4 verse 2. Some of you maybe have made that connection. You know, when the scripture says these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, you're thinking, well, what in the world does that mean? Uh, turn to Zechariah chapter 4. Hey, and by the way, on um, Zechariah's in the Old Testament. On Thursday nights, I'm going to be having you turn in your Bibles a lot, so get ready to, to swipe or to flip because I'm not always going to have it on the screen. I gave you part of it on the screen, but not all of it. So the Bible says in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1, Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I'm looking, and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. So if you're familiar... Uh, with Judaism, you know he's talking about a golden menorah, right? A golden menorah, it is a lampstand that has seven lamps. Um, and the menorah, on, on each of the ends of those seven uh, lamps, is a container that would hold the holy oil. And so one of the responsibilities of priests who were on a rotation is they would make sure that each of those cups that was on the seven lamps was filled with oil and was continually lit before the Lord, and this menorah was in the holy place, in the temple. By the way, if you go to Israel with me, when we're up on the temple mount, we will literally walk by the menorah that's been prepared for the third temple. So it's, it's, all, it's already made, it's, it's, uh, it's it's right there on the Temple Mount. It's encased in this glass case, and you can see it yourself. It's, it's a pretty amazing thing. He goes on to say, two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. This is why he asked in the first place. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of, of hosts. 
And then he goes on to say, let me just read verse 7. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. So real quick, like the historical context is this. Uh, Zerubbabel, the one who was responsible for leading the rebuilding of the temple, was discouraged. He was discouraged, and he needed a word from God. And God essentially says through illustration, listen, I'm going to empower you. And the vision that Zechariah has um, is a vision of two lampstands, and those, the, the lampstands, the typical menorah that have the oil in the cups, the difference is this, they are literally plumbed into an olive tree. And so there are pipes that are feeding olive oil from the olive tree into the lampstand. And God is saying to him, listen, it's not your intelligence, it's not your capacity, it's not your personality, it's not by man's might, it's not by man's power, it's by my spirit. And Zerubbabel, in your weakness, in your inability, in your own personal incapacity, as you are outnumbered, as the people don't even want to do the work. You know, I mean, the, the people were building their own homes. On Sabbath, instead of going to temple, they were going to Home Depot. Does that sound familiar? Or they were bodybuilding. They were going to 24-hour fitness. I don't know what the equivalent would have been, but they were disengaged, totally disengaged. I don't know about you, but it sounds like Christians today, right? only engaged as much as is com comfortable for them to be engaged. Only as engaged, as much as it is comfortable for them to be engaged. And God says, listen, I'm, I'm going to supply the power. I'm going to supply the power, and I'm not just going to fill your cup from time to time. You are going to be plumbed into the power of my Holy Spirit. So let me, let me say this. Um, this is the promise of the New Testament for you and for me. Right? It is, it's the promise of the New Testament for you and for me. Sometimes, and uh, I try not to do this, but sometimes when we talk about Thursday night, you know, it's like, hey, I get filled up on Sunday, and then I'm running kind of low, and so I, I pop in on Thursday, and I get filled up, and then, you know, I, I drain. I drain, you know, I'm, 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 I'm pouring out, so I come on Sunday again, um, and that concept, that idea is, is not really a New Testament concept of our empowering because we literally have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We are plumbed. We are piped into his power, right? And so we're never, I mean, we are constantly pouring out, which is why we need the, the consistent refreshing you know, we look at our lives like an automobile. We fill up on Sunday, we kind of run low, and so we come in on Thursday, and you know the process. When it's not really an issue of um, power via storage, it's power via contact, right? We are in constant contact with the Holy Spirit, and so that supply of power is always there. This is why Jesus said that the way to the baptism of the Holy Spirit is by asking, Right? This was what he said, to ask the Father. And so, I don't want to go off on that, but these two witnesses, who are they? We'll talk about them in a minute. They are plumbed into, they're plumbed into the power of God. I mean, there's a clear demonstration of their power. Uh, so, who are they? Do you guys know who they are? You say out loud while I take a drink of my coffee. Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Okay, let's do this. Elijah, if you think one of them's Elijah, raise your hand. All right. 
If you think one of them is Moses, raise your hand. Okay. Um, if you think one of them's Enoch, raise your hand. Okay. Perhaps. Okay, perhaps. And then, and then any other options? Any other options? Come on, come on, come on. Maybe Zerubbabel and Joshua? Okay, we'll talk about that. So one possibility for sure is Elijah, all right? Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's this three and a half year period of time. It is the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so some, some people say, well, that prophecy was not fulfilled, right? We know it was not fulfilled, and so it must be that Elijah is going to return. Not only that, but in his ministry, remember, Elijah withheld the rain through his prayer. And then in addition to that, fire fell from heaven. You remember on Mount Carmel, that was the battle that, you know, he had with the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. Check this out. Let me just read a couple more verses. Verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Now, I wish this was a spiritual gift sometimes. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I'm like, Lord, can I claim that in Jesus' name? Because, because I can see a couple pile of ashes right now. <laughs> so... So he goes on to say, and if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this matter, manner. Excuse me. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So Elijah, of course, you know, there were, there were things that Elijah did that fit within, you know, these particular uh, powers that God will give these, these prophets. And in addition to that, we know it's, it's unique for sure for Elijah that Elijah did not physically die. Remember, he was taken up in a whirlwind. The chariot of fire separated him and Elisha, and the Bible says the whirlwind, the, the whirlwind, the whirlwind took him up, like he had his own personal rapture. Some say, well, listen, it, maybe it's Moses, you know, because there were plagues that God empowered Moses to do. One of them, of course, was turning water to blood. And so it seems, it seems like maybe one might be Moses. Mount Transfiguration, Jesus appears with Elijah on one side and Moses on the other. There was a battle over the body of Moses. The book of Jude says that the adversary, Satan, and it, it would seem that the adversary himself knew that the, that the body of Moses was going to be, be used for something in the future, maybe. And so there was this contention over Moses' body. And Michael the archangel rebuked. He said, the Lord rebuke you. There's a whole different point that Jude has there. So maybe... Maybe it is Moses, considering the transfiguration, considering the battle over the physical body of Moses, considering the uh, different plagues that he was able to perform. Some say, well, maybe it's Enoch, because Enoch, of course, did not die either. Like, he, he went for a walk, and <laughs> just, I'm waiting for this, by the way. 
you know. And, you know, I, I've, I've probably said this a hundred times, but, but poor, poor Miss Enoch. Poor Miss Enoch. Like, you know, she's cooked a killer meal or, or something like that. She's waiting for the man to come home, you know, and he, he just doesn't come home. There, there is no more Enoch because he walked with God and was not, right? I mean, to be walking in that type of communion with God and for that communion to be so rich and so real that the minute that you are translated from earth to heaven because you've been walking so closely with God that there's almost no difference, you know, I think, I don't know if it was like that for Enoch, but it's possible that is Enoch. And then there are others who say, hey, listen, you know, this is really pointing back to Zechariah chapter 4. And that is talking about Zerubbabel and is talking about Joshua, who was the high priest at the time. And so, so maybe, you know, we're not necessarily looking at them being resurrected in some sense and um, being these literal witnesses, but maybe they're two individuals that are operating in the same capacity as Zerubbabel and Joshua. Um, listen, you know, I mean, you've got lots of options to choose from. The great thing is this, from my point of view, we'll be watching from heaven. They are infused with God's power, right? They are infused with God's power. And so let me just, let me just tie this section off by saying two things. Number one, the Holy Spirit isn't a power source that you plug into. He is the third person of the Trinity that you look to and depend upon that you look to and depend upon. Some people, you know, they talk about the Holy Spirit like he's an outlet in a wall and you just need to plug into him. He's not an impersonal power source. He is, he is a person. He is the third person of the triune Godhead. How do we engage in a way with the Holy Spirit where that power source is flowing continuously? It is through revelation. And then in addition to that, I would just point you back to what Jesus said about the church. We are the light of the world. The church is the lampstand, right? We are to be set like a city set on a hill, and we are to be proclaiming the gospel of Christ until he comes back for us, which, which they do. Check this out, verse 7. When they, they finish their testimony, when they finish their testimony, so they've been proclaiming, they've been preaching, they've been declaring, they've been living out, right? They are, they are the witnesses. The Greek word is mar marturos, where we get our English word martyr from. There, there's this sense here that we're not just talking about finishing a sentence, we're talking about finishing a calling, right? There's a purpose, there's a plan. There was a time frame that God had connected to his plan for these individuals. And when they had completed the plan of God, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies, the Bible says, will lie in the street of the great city, we're talking about Jerusalem, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So, so listen, from, from the outside, you look at Jerusalem and you say, man, religious city is so significant and pleasing to God. And God is saying at this point in time, from a heavenly perspective, not pleasing to me, Sodom and Egypt. Sodom and Egypt, right? There, there is a spiritual fornication that's happening in my holy city, the place that was to be called by my name. I mean, there, there's not a city that has a, a greater stigma for sin than Sodom, biblically and otherwise. I mean, you know, God could not have used more extreme terms here. 
So the, the city with the greatest stigma for sin, for sure, is Sodom. And the city that was representative of the flesh and everything that was against God is Egypt. When you look at the Old Testament, you will find that Egypt is always in conflict with Jerusalem. It is always against the people of God. It is always symbolic of the flesh. And so on the outside, from a human perspective, people may say, wow, consecrated and dedicated to God. God sees past the veneer, right? You guys know that. God sees past the veneer. He sees on the inside. And what he saw was Sodom and in Egypt. Excuse me. This is my beard. That's my fault. Sorry. I knew that was going to happen. So what he sees is Sodom and Egypt. Now, I just want you to consider a couple of things here about these witnesses. You guys all right? We still good? We good? All right. Um, they completed their calling. They completed their calling. They were faithful. It was not an easy calling. Um, albeit that when people gave them a hard time, they just called down fire from heaven, which would be a nice thing to be able to do, but we've been called to something different than them. Um, they were only allowed to be killed when their allotted time was done. So listen, they were, they were impervious, right? They were impervious. They were preserved until their season was up, until God was saying, hey, uh, your ministry has been fulfilled. And what I love about these witnesses, these two, is that they lived fearlessly. They lived fearlessly for the Lord. Not foolishly, but they lived fearlessly. Nothing could stop them from being faithful to God, which is really what the word witness means. It means faithfully declaring who God is and what we've experienced in our relationship with him. That's what it means to be a witness. Now, I think sometimes you look at these two witnesses and you're like, man, I've got nothing in common with them. You have everything in common with them because what they were declaring was Christ and their experience with Christ. And God, is, God has, listen, while our ministry may look different, God has called us to the same thing. We are to be witnesses. We are to be faithful to the calling that God has placed on our lives for as long as God has us here for God's glory, for our joy, and for the salvation of others, right? I mean, listen, I, I have this conversation with believers every now and then, and they'll, they'll say to me, Pastor, I just, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what my purpose is. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, and let's talk about the Great Commission. Look, I don't know about the details of your life, so don't ask me about all the nuances but I will tell you what your main purpose is. And if you're faithful to this, God will handle everything else. God will handle everything else. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. And lo, you little short people too, lo, I am with you until the end of the age. Right? I'm, I'm saying to the church, right, I'm saying to the church that this is what God has called us to. Our message isn't all about what we're against. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because let me tell you something, man, when it comes to the unbelieving person talking about the Christian message today, sometimes all they hear are the things that Christians are against. And I'm not saying that there aren't things that we that, that we aren't against. But I'm saying that the thing that we're for is much more important than all the things that we're against. 
And so our message has to be what we're for, fundamentally and primarily. When people talk to you, when people read your social media threads, are they discovering what you're for, or is it just a bunch of what you're against? Because what you're against isn't going to save anybody. What you're for is, and you should be for the Lord, right? You should be for the Lord. So check this out, crazy, crazy story here. Um, their dead bodies are going to lie in the street of the city for three and a half days, for three and a half days. Um, people are going to see it. So obviously we're talking about the era of satellites. It's going to be broadcast mostly on CNN. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just totally joking. I'm just playing. Don't, don't send me an email over that. But they're going to see it. It's going to be broadcast. All of the nations are going to rejoice because the nations have hated these two, right? I mean, they have seen three and a half years of two people preaching a message that they don't want to hear, right? An exclusive message in conflict with the one world religion that the Antichrist has set up, in conflict with the message that collectively the nations have been believing. And not only that, every time someone comes up against them, there's like, there's an ash ring all around these guys because fire falls from heaven. And finally, the Antichrist who, who ascends up out of the bottomless pit is given the authority because God allows it to kill these two witnesses, and they're excited. The, the nations are excited. The bodies are decaying for three and a half days. Um, they are so excited, they have like a satanic Christmas, and they exchange gifts to one another because these two prophets so tormented those who dwell on the earth. Well, they're in for a surprise, verse 11, because God loves surprises. You know that, right? Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. Could you imagine? Oh, my gosh. Don't you just want to see this? I mean, it's like they're, they're totally rejoicing themselves. High fives, you know, all the emojis on social media and text messages, thumbs up, happy face, right? And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden it happens. And, and from the Jewish perspective, remember, the idea was that after three days, they believed a person was really dead because that's when the soul departed. And so there's no doubt we're not talking about being revived. We're talking about being resurrected. Those are two very different things. It's not like they were just mostly dead, like in Princess Bride, you know, just kind of dead. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, their hearts started beating again. No, they were really dead. And then what God does is he breathes his breath of life in, into them. And you know, this is what God does. When God breathes, what, what is dead comes to life. Right? You guys know that. When God breathes, when God breathes, what is dead comes to life. When you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, the breath of God via the Holy Spirit enters your body and you are filled with living waters. You are revived. You were spiritually dead because you were born spiritually dead. But in Christ, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, you are made alive. Because when God breathes on your dead spirit, it comes to life. And, and you are, you're, you're spiritually resurrected in a sense. All of your spiritual senses now are attuned to the things of God. This is why you're here on a Thursday night. Like you could be anywhere else on a Thursday night, but you're here present in church. Why? Because, not because you're so godly. 
right? Not because you're so special, even though each of you is really special. Each of you are really special. But, but because God's done something in your life. You've been born again. That's the way he says it. You've been born again, born from above. You are not just religious people sitting here getting extra credit because, you know, the average Christian goes on Sunday, but you go on Thursday too, so you get extra points. No, that is not, that is not why you're here. You're here because God has breathed life into you. Thank God for that, right? So, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Isn't this awesome? Like, this is so wild. So the story for the, for the uh, anti-God person, the story gets worse, not only are they resurrected, but God affirms them by this global declaration, this call from heaven to these individuals. And what happens to them? They ascend. They have their own personal rapture in a cloud. And then verse 13, in the same hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were, were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven and gave glory to the God of heaven. So God demonstrates his judgment, his justice on the city of Jerusalem. The earthquake is so significant that from a structural perspective, a tenth of the city falls, 7,000 people are killed, and there is a godly fear that permeates the hearts of the people. They recognize this to be from the Lord, and they give him glory. This has all been contained, the Bible says in verse 14, in the second woe. It's past. The third woe is coming quickly. Can we do verses 15 to 19? Yeah. Okay, great. So, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God. So, so now preceding, this is like the prelude to the three and a half year period called the time of Jacob's trouble. The severest of God's severe wrath. We have this declaration of the sovereignty of God over all the kingdoms of the earth. And then we have this song that is sung by the 24 elders who are sitting before God and fall on their faces and worship him. Let me just read this and we'll just make a couple of comments. This is what they say. This is what they say and sing. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. You can check Psalm 2 out later. At the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So this is the great buildup in heaven before the final three and a half years. And, and these are the pieces to, to what is declared. Number one, there is an announcement of victory. It's an acknowledgement. God, all these kingdoms, right, from from the perspective, the human finite perspective on earth, it seems as if no one's in control, and yet the fact has always been this, you have always been in control. 
God, you've always been in control. The kingdoms have always been under your, your sovereignty, your authority. There's not a single thing that has happened that hasn't happened with your affirmation, your acknowledgement, each piece fitting into your divine plan. And so let me just say as a way of application, stop living your life as if God isn't in control. Stop living your life as if God isn't in control. I know from the heavenly, from the human perspective, from the finite perspective, from the feeling perspective, sometimes we think this is total chaos. And then we, our hearts get encroached by fear and anxiety and stress and everything feels like it's out of orbit and things are just random, randomly happening and we become untethered from the authority and the sovereignty of God. And in, the, in those moments, we just need to remember that God is on his throne, that he is ruling and reigning faithfully. Even all the kingdoms during the time of the great tribulation are under the authority of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I don't know what you're dealing with tonight. I'm not sure what you're struggling with. I'm not sure what issue of control you're battling because, you know, sometimes what happens is the anxiety and stress that we have in our lives is a function of our sense of personal lack of control, right? And the truth is this, for you control freaks, we got one? We got one? Anybody? Control is an illusion. You were never in control in the first place. But let me tell you who is in control. God is in control. So there's an announcement of victory in verse 15. There's an acclamation of praise in verses 16 and 17. Um, this is the third song of praise. Praise and proclamation precede destruction and wrath. I mean, it's just a hard thing for us to get our mind around. But in heaven, the view is going to be completely different. Praise and proclamation precede destruction and wrath. In Revelation chapter 4, the song focused on God as creator. In Revelation chapter 5, the song focused on God as redeemer. In Revelation chapter 11 here, the song focuses on God as king and as judge. As king and as judge. It begins with gratitude. An acknowledgement that God is the almighty God, that he is eternal, that he is the one unchanging thing in the universe, that he is immutable, and that he is absolutely in control. I love how the songs of heaven start with gratitude. We have so much to thank God for. So much to thank God for. Hey, listen, in your time of prayer, before you get to the grumbling, complaining, before you get to the struggle and the difficulty, start with thanksgiving and gratitude. Just start there. Start there. Well, Pastor, I don't have anything to thank God for. Well, are you saved? Are you saved? Are you born again? Are you forgiven of your sins? Are you heaven bound? Are you not going to hell? I mean, look, start with that. God, thank you that I'm not going to hell. Gratitude, right? An acknowledgement of the anger of the nations, right? The nations were raging against God, Psalm 2, because they wanted their way and God, God, expose the reality that he was in control over all things. They acknowledge, the song acknowledges, and of course the 24 elders most likely represent the church, acknowledge the judgment of God. We'll, we'll handle this at another time, but there are three judgments um, in eschatology from an end times perspective. There's the judgment of nations, 
There is the judgment of believers, which is the bema seat of Christ, and then there's the judgment of the unbeliever, which is the great, right, great white throne of judgment. Um, and then the final thing that they say here deals with God's wrath and how he will destroy those who destroyed the earth. Verse 19, then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant. You've, I know you've wondered where the ark of the covenant is at. And uh, well, let me tell you where it's at. It's in heaven. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Father, thank you so much for your word tonight. And God, thank you for what we learn about you. God, we, it is interesting. Two witnesses, that's interesting. Third temple. God, that's interesting and fascinating. But, but you are the one who captivates our attention. And Father, we just want to thank you. It's good to begin our time together with gratitude. It is good for us to end our time together with gratitude as well. Just to th say thank you, Lord, and that we bless your name for every good thing that you have done in our lives. Tonight, as our eyes are closed and as our heads are bowed, Maybe this evening, so, so thankful that you're present here with us as we've had the opportunity to, to open the word of God and discover things about God. The truth is perhaps this, that you're not born again. You, you have yet to experience God breathing his breath into your life. Raising you up in a spiritual sense, forgiving you of your sins drawing you into his family through faith in Jesus. And maybe there have been religious things that you've done, but, but the fact is this, those religious things will never be able to save you. You can't stack all of your good works up against the sins in your life and, and somehow compensate for those sins by good deeds. You and I need to be forgiven of our sins. We need to be cleansed from our sins. And the only way to be forgiven and cleansed is by putting our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. His blood was shed, the Bible says, as a sacrifice for us. He gave his life for you so that through faith in him, you could belong to God. And so this evening, if you've never taken that step of faith and trusted in Christ, you've not really experienced the power of God's Holy Spirit being, being born again unto life, tonight God is inviting you to come to him in faith and to trust in Christ and to experience his life-giving power. Tonight, would you say yes to the Lord? Stop resisting and fighting against God and welcome him into your heart. Tonight, if this is you, you would say, Pastor, that's me. I, I need God in my life. I need to be born again. I need to be forgiven of my sins. Right where you're sitting tonight, I want to pray for you, and I'm going to ask you, would you raise your hand? Just acknowledge tonight that you want to put your trust and faith in Christ. I see your hand in the back. That's so awesome. Thank you. Anybody else? Maybe tonight you need to 
rededicate your life to Christ as a Christian. It's not that you're not born again, but, but maybe there are things in your life that have led you back to spiritual Egypt. And you need to, need to lay them at the foot of the cross. You need to recommit your life to Christ. You need to give him everything tonight. Christian, if this is you, would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Thank you. I see your hand and yours and yours. God bless you guys. I see your hand over here on my left. Thank you. All right. You can put your hands down. Father, thank you. God, we are so grateful for your faithfulness and pray that you bless these lives tonight as they turn their hearts wholly and completely to you. Tonight, right where you're sitting, I want to lead you in a very simple prayer. And this is your prayer to God. God loves you. He wants you to seek him and he wants you to pray to him. He wants you to confess your sin and your faith in Jesus, his son. And so right here tonight, you know, you have your own personal divine appointment, your own meeting with God. And I want to lead you in a very simple prayer. And so I'm going to ask you this evening to follow me in prayer. You can pray this out loud or you can pray this in the quiet of your own heart. But follow me tonight. Dear God, I want to thank you that you have spoken to me. And tonight I give you my life. Tonight I confess I've sinned against you. Tonight I'm turning to Jesus, your son, believing that he died for me, believing that he rose again, believing that through faith in him, Father, you have forgiven me and you've made me your child. Fill me with your spirit and thank you for giving me life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you.